check is flat. Give me up. Look at Bill! Look at Bill! This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hey, everyone. This is mile 86 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. This week, we're excited to bring you Furman University track star Ryan Adams. Ryan is among the top competitors for the 1500 meters crown in the upcoming NCAA track and field championships. He's also a multi-time conference champion and school record holder. Late last week, Ryan joined me for a conversation between his sips of Pedialyte as he hydrated for one of his last pre-NCAA workouts. He'll next compete at the East Prelim in Jacksonville Friday evening on his path to Eugene, Oregon. We hope you enjoy Ryan's thoughtful and candid perspective on his collegiate track experience. He takes us from the highs of record-breaking performances to the challenge of the last-minute cancellation of the 2020 Indoor National Championships. Along the way, you'll get to know someone you want to root for this spring, someone who exemplifies the intercollegiate student-athlete ideal. Now here's Ryan Adams on Mile 86 of Seconds Flat. Ryan, welcome in. It's a joy to spend time with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Travis, for having me. You are the Furman school record holder in the 800 meters, mile, and 3,000 indoor, and 1,500 meters outdoor. Help me out. Did I miss any records there? I think that covers it. Okay. I want to say technically I'm also on that 4x4 record team indoor, but I'm not sure if that's listed. Okay, Hey, that's a pretty good resume, given the, yeah. the accomplishments of this program, uh, particularly over the past decade. Those are exceptional feats. So set the table for us. Tell us where you are now in your season, how it's going, and what's coming up. I know we caught you at a, a pretty great time of the spring. Yeah, so right now is a nice little in-between time. I had my last race at the Oregon Twilight a week and a half ago. Um, and our conference meet, I'm in the Southern Conference, um, was actually super early compared to a lot of meets, um, other conference meets at least. It was about a week before that Oregon Twilight, so right about that um, end of April, beginning of, beginning of May. So just winding uh, things down, doing some tough sharpening stuff to get ready for whatever kind of race is going to be thrown at me in, uh, in Jacksonville for the East Region. It's always a, a little nerve-wracking running through rounds because you just never know who's going to be ready, who's going to show up. It could be one of the big names uh, that you would expect, but and I can remember in 2019, I, I think my entry time uh, had me ranked probably like 42 or 43 in the region and ended up qualifying out to Austin. Um, so it just goes to show you can't really count anyone out that's in that top 48. Boy, that's a great lesson. How did that play out in the finals in, in 2019 at the region? Yeah, so that was a little bit more of a physical race. Um, actually, both of those races in uh, they were in Jacksonville as well um, were a little more physical. In the first round, I was a little timid when it came to really jockeying for position in that last 500 meters. So I ended up being uh, knocked to the back, just dropped like a rock. And I was in pretty poor position, but with a pretty hard scramble the last 150, I was able to qualify out. 
um, to the quarterfinals and then at the quarterfinals, it looks to be the exact same picture, slow pace out, nothing that's too unreasonable. Everyone in the field can hang out uh, at a, whatever it was, like a 420 mile pace, um, if that. And once it started winding down again, uh, it was remembering from that previous race, this is where I, I kind of lost it by not fighting for my spot. And it took a little bit of pushing. I'm sure uh, uh, Kenneth Hagen did not appreciate <laughs> a little bit of elbowing. And um, I can't remember if it was uh, Sean or Chris Torpy, but I, I saw that there was a little gap forming between him and Jack Joyce of Virginia Tech. Um, as soon as um, Waleed and Justin Kiprotich had taken had made their moves, and I was like, I got to shoot this gap right here real quick. So shot the gap, and then uh, for the next 300 meters, I was just staring at the backs of the leaders, and uh, at that point, I was like, "All right, we're all we're all in the clear here." Um, this was not a super hot pace going out, and I think everyone that's uh, that's got the strong kick is right here in the front. And it's all about all about positioning. Lesson learned and well applied. And you just mentioned the uh, Oregon Twilight 1500. Uh, uber competitive race uh, you ran hmm. 337.66 so for the unfamiliar this translates to like a 355 ish mile first tell us about the experience at that beautiful new stadium love to hear about that and then next how does that performance have you feeling heading towards ncas in jacksonville and then hopefully to the championships well i guess to start out that is a true olympic stadium that is um i i was actually a little blown away when i first walked in for uh for pre-meet the day before um i was definitely in the boat of oh how could they be tearing down the uh the historic hayward field i mean like this is um this is our one stadium save maybe drake that is historic it's well known um big races happen here and uh i was like oh man well kind of sad to see the old wooden grandstands go but uh, we'll see how this new new design is, and I mean, they knocked it out of the park. Um, it's if you're walking by it and you don't know anything about um, the landscape of Oregon, you would think this is a collegiate football stadium or even a professional football stadium. And then you walk in, and you got this uh, pristine track and all the pits that are in the center for the field events, um, leather seats or some kind of faux leather, I'm sure, because uh, <laughs> you don't want to have real weather in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> exposed to the elements. But even without having a huge crowd. Um, it still felt like a pretty, you could feel that Hayward magic. And I think part of that was also due to the level of competition in that heat. Um, I think a couple guys, I want to say the Oregon track club ended up not showing due to some kind of COVID related concerns. Um, so they ended up pushing a couple more of the pros into, into our heat, but even without that, I mean, these were the top names in the NCAA and this was, a great preview for me almost as like a little pre-nationals meet to uh to toe the line against guys like uh guys like Cooper Tier um or Yared um, and, and obviously Yard's proven his medal in the past uh couple weeks that he's just been <laughs> just started racing basically um and Cole Hawker Charlie Hunter the, the entire Oregon men's contingent as well as a couple of other guys from the east and it was a good confidence boost in the sense of I can hang with these guys like these, these are, um, these, these are the top names, but I'm not, I'm not too far behind them when it comes to another nationals race. I'd like to put myself a little further or a, a little further up front in the mix. Um, because I think it was a valuable lesson in, in learning a lesson in learning that I can't make up 
the distance on guys that caliber um, as easily as maybe at a smaller uh, invitational. So uh, it was a very valuable racing experience um, in terms of what a nationals finals might look like if it's a hot pace from the gun. You know, that's really interesting because we always see championship racing play out in a sit and kick format, right? And um, it, it's interesting to get inside your head maybe a little bit there, Ryan, and you have to have extreme confidence in your ability to be at the level that you compete. But everybody has that when you get in, in a race like that. Where do you find that edge for you of... Uh, I got to get a little more up in the mix versus uh, lay back and trust my clothes. How have you found the, the balance there in walking that tightrope? Well, I'd say, you know, I live by uh, in the, I want to say it's Proverbs one. It's the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And in terms of track and field, God is conditions. God is uh, the wind. God is your competitors. You don't know what's going to happen. There's no planning. There's no truly planning a race. So I trust in my own kick. I, I know that I've got great top end speed um, that can rival pretty much any, any of the top guys in the NCAA in terms of the 15, obviously not uh, 400 or maybe even 800 <laughs> down. Those guys are <laughs> pretty quick themselves. I'd like um, to throw you in one of those, Ryan, let's get you in the blocks. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh man. Uh, that'd be a rest in peace hamstrings, but <laughs> um <laughs> But having faith in that close, um, but also not, uh, but also respecting that there's other guys that are working with a similar tool set. And if I'm not with them when that move is made, there's not going to be, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to run out of real estate before the finish line. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't matter if I'm reeling them in, if I'm on, on a forward momentum. I mean, I learned that at semifinals in 2019, I didn't qualify out to the finals um, and it was it was disappointing crossing the line and feeling like, man, I'm not spent here. Um, but I wasn't positioned properly and I missed when everyone went. So having that respect for the other athletes and knowing that these guys uh, aren't guys that you're going to blow away, but more guys that you're going to fend off or edge out um, versus dramatically kick away from. Um, so it's, it's having, having that humble confidence, I, I'd say, going in knowing what you're capable of, but also knowing that your competitors are equally as capable. As you spoke about the semis in 2019, it, it made me want to ask you to take us through the 1500 meter race experience with you. Because as you said there, it often comes down to a split second, <laughs> uh, a reaction or you making a move that someone else reacts to. For the listeners who haven't competed at that level in that event what you feel on the line your mental cues how you read your body and those around you the feeling when that searing burn of the mile sets in tell us about some of those elements as you move through the metric mile yeah so and it really does depend on what kind of race you're looking at I mean, if it's this um if it's like you said a tactical championship race and it's going out a little slower. Uh, it's keeping that breathing down and like you're offline hard and you're trying to get a good position in that first 300, 400 meters um, to a point where whenever the move is made that you're ready to strike. But sometimes I feel the 
image on the video doesn't do justice to how clustered it can feel when the pace is slow. You really are, uh, uh, I mean, like you're rubbing elbows with guys for almost the entire race until the move is made. Uh, you might have someone clip uh, the outside of your leg as you're kicking back, and you might clip the guy in front of you. Um, and it's nothing personal. It's just the sheer amount of, uh, the sheer limitation of space. I mean, it's, it's, there's a premium on, uh, on having a spot with space, but you're paying it for it in other ways. Like if you're on the outside, you're running the extra distance, but you're a little clearer. Um, if you're on the inside, you're running less distance, but you risk being boxed in. So when I'm in those situations where I'm not either leading or on the outside and I'm on the inside, and um, that's typically the way that I like to run, I kind of like to put myself in the mix. I'm a little, I, I inherited my father's broad shoulders and he was a decathlete <laughs> back in his, uh, his prime. So, um, so I can throw my weight around a little more um, as long as I'm feeling confident and feeling like I uh, know what I'm doing and really jockey for that position and fend people off that are trying to um, uh, step into my space, which can be a little more exhausting, but um, sometimes I, I, I prefer that. But if we're talking about a fast race, a almost time trial, um, which I think a lot of people, people hear time trial and they think, so it's not a race anymore. And it absolutely is. But now it's just who can grit their teeth and who can, um, who can kick when the pace is already hot. That's, it's, it's similar at the beginning because the, the start is going to be fast no matter what. You're off the line hard um, and you want to get a good spot. Um, at the Oregon Twilight, I'd say it probably wasn't aggressive enough um, on the first two, 300 meters. And um, I was looking at the splits and at the first 300, I've seen 11th. But it, granted, it was only about half a second back from the leaders. But that half second can grow, especially if there's a big group that's in front of there that will ultimately start to spread once the pace continues. So when it continues, um, usually I, I call it kind of that first four to 500 meters, the adrenaline zone. You don't really feel much um, except for your heartbeat. You feel great. I remember at Ole Miss, we went out and uh, ran about 55 seconds for that first 400. And I would have told you that was a 61 second lap. And that's really how it feels. Um, now, if you drop back from that pace a little bit to overcompensate, you're going to feel a little better. But if it stays on like a consistent pace, then it's a matter of uh, once you're out of that adrenaline zone, um, really keeping your wits about you. You're going to see a lot of people start to drift back from that fast pace because that initial sting, it's not really quite setting in, but it's going to set in. Um, uh, right about, I'd say, that for the first wave of sting comes around like 700 meters. Um, so exactly two laps to the finish. And that third lap is essential for a fast time. And at the twilight, what you'll see in the splits is that there was a big lag. And I want to say that was probably because there was, there was a lot on the line between winning and losing. And I'm sure with guys like Yard and Cooper, um, it meant a lot as a national preview, who's going to win this one. And whoever took the, uh, the pace to keep it honest was likely not going to be the one to win it. Um, he uh, he would have been the sacrificial lamb to keep the pace fast. So at that point, the pace lags a little bit, lets you catch your breath, lets you gather your strength. Um, and if it lags, you feel a little better. If it doesn't, then it kind of continues on. You start feeling that sting setting more and more. And then over the last 400 meters, it's a matter of who can ignore the sting, but ride that fine balance of, ignore this thing and speed up, but not speed up too much to the, to the point where, uh, where you're hitting that rigor mortis. Um, I mean, you see a lot of guys that will bonk in that last hundred meters. I bonked in, in my last hundred meters of the race where 
it's just really ugly and um and it it's typically due to a, a miscalculation uh in when you should move and that's race experience especially the, um the faster and faster races get i try not to be the first guy to make the move obviously that's harder it's, it's uh it, it can be sustainable obviously you see guys like matt centrowitz and craig angles and and even your cooper and cole like i mean they can sustain these moves and uh i just don't feel experienced enough in that in that sense but i i think ignoring that sting to respond to someone's move and then down the home stretch if you're tunnel visioning excuse me tunnel visioning but you're still moving fast uh i don't know there's there's something uh there's something about being like towards the front of that race and knowing that you're you're keying on, on a fast time, you're keying on a, on a good race where you do feel that hot lactic acid that starts pouring, not just through your legs, but your arms, uh, your eyes start, start blurring on the outsides. Uh, you, you feel like it's just hot lead. Um, but I think that's where the competitive nature really takes over. And if you've primed yourself mentally before then, it's almost like you're not necessarily consciously driving yourself, but it's whatever you've done to prepare yourself is driving you towards the finish line because it's like, well, I've also worked incredibly hard for this. I know that everyone else on the track has worked hard. Um, they put in their, their hours, they paid their dues, but so have I. And, and I want to see that payoff. Uh, it's, it's easy to say I want it more than anyone else, but when it comes down to it, usually the guy that wants it the most is the guy that crosses the line first. And usually it's at great pain. <laughs> That's a beautiful description. Brian, you've been knocking at the, on the door of this Olympic trial standard, <laughs> 337.5 all spring. Uh, twice this season, you're under 338. You got a couple more sub 339 performances. You already mentioned Drake. You won there, historic venue. You won at EKU, SOCON champ again. How much are you thinking about that, Mark? And how are these dual goals right now tugging at you? Because we're, we're talking about the buildup to a potential NCAA championship, but it's an Olympic year and you are a, a competitor who is in the mix for both. So yeah, where's that mark sit in your mind and how are you balancing NCAA and Olympic dreams all at once? <laughs> oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there was the slight disappointment at the twi Oregon twilight crossing that line and just waiting to see that mark. And when I see that, um, 0. 0.66, I was like, Oh, goodness. well, it's a PB. So I need to take a PB. And I think it's always great to, to celebrate when you do improve upon your best time. But it was also like, it's tantalizingly close. Like that's a, that could also be like a positioning thing. Like if I was one person ahead throughout the entire race, instead of, um, sitting back, uh, towards the back, then that could have been that, you know, not just two tenths, but half a second. So there have been meets where we're more specifically going after a time like that. Um, opening it up at Ole Miss, we were just wanting to see what the opener was going to be, aiming for a trials qualifier, um, but ultimately just trying to open up with a fast time. EKU was a structured meet with a good rabbit. Uh, we had Craig Nowak out there, and he's proven himself uh, – on the professional circuit as a great professional rabbit can key on, on pretty much any pace, take any guys through and wind them up towards that last uh, couple hundred meters that he's in the race. And that one was my first time under 338. So it was, there was again, the slight disappointment of like, Oh, it wasn't a 337.5, but also it's something to be celebrated. And then after that point, coach Gary said, 
let's hold off on really time trialing these things. You need to practice racing in a, in a, in a, against good racers. So something like a Drake relays where you've got Adam Fogg um, and talking in Hidali, who prior to that was pretty unproven in the 1500. And, but just by virtue of being a 145 guy uh, and a 356 indoor miler, he was a major player going in. These were good guys to test out tactics and test out closing against. Um, and it did come down to the line between Adam and I, and um, I got it that day, you know, had I waited slightly longer, just two steps further, he probably would have uh, held me off for that last hundred meters. Um, but I think it was really valuable to get more and more experience racing at big levels against big names, against the top guys. Um, even if at some points it meant uh, not having my best performance for my best clothes or not putting myself in or, or, you know, uh, uh, at Drake ending up winning the race, like it's all good experience that, um, that informs how to run at a high level and how to, how on a weekly basis I can uh, treat my body right to recover and come off of a 337 weekend and follow it with another 337 or 338 the following weekend, which is important when it comes to rounds, especially at the NCAA tournament at the Olympic trials. Um, it's not just who can run fast, but it's who can run fast and come back two days later and run fast again. And then a week later, and then for the Olympic trials, I'm, I guess I'm fairly sure it's three heats or three preliminaries. And so it's who's going to be able to come back and, and run three fast races in a row. And um, I look at what coach Gary's training has been like and what, how he's been racing me. And I've never raced this much in, in a single season, but I think it's been great preparation for championship racing um, and not just on the NCAA level, but, but also racing against professionals and towing the line against guys that have the experience. I mean, like earlier this season during our, um, or well, during my redshirt indoor season, I got a couple outdoor races and racing against guys like uh, Nick Willis, who maybe he's an older guy, but he still <laughs> beat me pretty good out in California and being able to pick his brain afterwards and, and asking him about the race and his reflections. And, um, and after a race in California where the pace lags, but then uh, it was hard uh, the first 300 lag, but the next 1200 was pretty hard, um, pretty consistent um, speed ups. And he was like, that's exactly what a world's preliminary looks like. You know, it might not be a 332 race, but you're going to have to be able to see respond to these moves and you can't get shaken off. Uh, and you have to be able to ultimately close down and secure one of those, uh, one of those qualifying spots for the next round. It's the same deal, just on a larger scale, survive in advance, survive in advance, and then race your ass off in the finals. <laughs> Can we assume then that NCA East at Jacksonville, NCA at Eugene are the two on the calendar? Uh, is there any other thought at trying to take another attempt at that number? Or is the hope that you perform well there, race well, and as a byproduct, you cut that 0. 0.16 <laughs> uh, off the end of your 1500 meter time? Yeah, so right now there's no other races on the calendar. It's Survive in advance for Jacksonville, um, but with yard running 334 and that yeah. uh, ACC's prelim, it's feasible to see maybe a, a blistering quarterfinals or maybe even a first round. Uh, you just never know what to expect in, a, in the preliminaries because you've got guys that are running desperate. I mean, maybe they know that they're not in the top, so it's, it's, all right, who can I shake off? Who can I shock? And who's not going to be willing to run? an honest race versus a tactical race. Right. 
So there's preparation for that. And obviously you can't plan for that, but I'm fairly confident in saying that I, I think that this uh, NCAA finals is going to be fast. I, I think we've seen a lot of tactics in the past couple of years. Um, I remember my, it was my freshman year when Clayton won it. He won with the 336. I mean, that was an honest race um, from the, from the gun. You had um, Henry Wynn and Isaac York's really setting the pace and trying to get away from him. But since then, you know, it's, it's been a lot of uh, who's got the clothes, who's, who's got the positioning, who's going to be in the right, uh, right spot at the right time. Um, this one, I think with just such, uh, such depth in the NCAA and such major names and major players who are likely going to be contenders for uh, not just podium spots, but um, team spots for, for either the U.S. or whatever countries they're representing. Um, I don't see that being a slow race. I don't think anyone is going to want to leave it up to chance. I think they're going to want to shake off whoever's not showing up the line ready for it. And if you can catch someone by surprise, like a top competitor, and uh, that's one less person to worry about. Because with a tactical race, you just never know who's going to hit the rail, fall down. You never know. uh, Or like who, who you'll be behind that'll fall in front of you. If you're going to get boxed in, um, if you're going to get elbowed out of, out of position, um, it kind of takes that chance element out of it a little more. And I just think with Cooper, Cole, Yard, um, Waleed, I mean, these are big names. Uh, maybe I'll include myself in there, but I just don't want to seem to, uh, <laughs> uh, too, like I'm tuning my home too much. But Hey, if, um, if you hadn't said it, I was going to. So put yourself <laughs> in that group. Yeah. Thanks, Travis. <laughs> um, but I think in any given year, uh, in the past couple of years, um, any of us might've been an NCAA number one seed coming in and uh, now you've just got it. So it's such a fast year that 30 plus guys have broken 340 in the NCAA. So, uh, it's just respecting that and knowing that anyone's a player and especially in that, uh, that top 10, it's the man that shows up and thinks that he can and, uh, and shows up ready for whatever kind of race is going to be thrown at him. Yeah, you mentioned that number of guys under 340. It does feel like the field's almost too good this year for there not <laughs> to be one more fast race at some point uh, to give you a shot. What was your first thought when you saw the result from ACC's in the heat <laughs> when Yarid goes 334, whatever it was, solo? So there was the initial shock just by seeing the time. But then once I saw the name, it was less shocking. Mm. I see a guy like Yard and I see someone that's, uh, that's tough, that's motivated, willing to drive himself. I'd seen the week before that uh, he was willing to lead, lean so hard that he uh, <laughs> ended up yeah. eating a little bit of track at the end of that line. And, and it's, it's a formidable time uh, for sure. But I, I think uh, this is a sport where guys that are – maybe seconds ahead uh, in terms of personal bests are uh, aren't necessarily in a more advantageous position just because they have a personal best that's faster. Uh, the worst thing that you can do is let yourself be psyched out. You know, it's taking that into account and being like, this person is capable of driving a race and driving it fast to the point where very few people in the NCAA could probably have been, uh, probably even hung on to him in that race. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Um, and if anything, you are doing it, um, proves that it's possible. Um, and I remember in high school, my cross country coach would always say what well, one man can do. And 
I always think that, you know, whenever I see an incredible performance, it's what one man can do. And uh, everyone thought that it was impossible to break four until Bannister did it. Um, and at that point, it was people that had the fitness and just needed that mentality shift and to see that it's possible to break such a monstrous record that Josh Kerr had held before. Um, so definitely uh, there, was, there was that initial shock, but, but it also did contribute to the spark that was already in there. You know, it, it kind of breathed a little, breathed a little bit of uh, air out of the fire of like, all right, this is, this is going to be the real deal. This is um, I think going to be the most historic NCAA's 1500 um, that there's ever been. Um, and uh, maybe not that there ever will be, but um, this will be the peak of it for now. I appreciate that perspective about the competitive greatness that is sparked, how our competitors truly can elevate our level of accomplishment. With that said, as you look back over your career, then what's maybe the most exciting race that you've competed in? Oh my goodness. It has been a long career. Are we talking um, college career, my career at Furman? Anything. If there's just something that, that pops to mind that, uh, you know, you, you rem- remember, whether it was in the moment or right after the moment, thinking mm-hmm. about how something special happened, how racing took you to a different level than just being out there on your own could. I mean, in terms of, of racing, I'd say last year at the Dr. Sanders meet, that was my first 3K in years. Um, and honestly, the only true 3K I've run with, uh, I have a result from JDL Fast Track for my freshman year, but it was more like a tune-up workout kind of thing. Let's see if the, the freshman actually did his work over the summer, uh, stuff like that. But I'd say it was, uh, it was probably the best field that I've ever been in uh, at that point. And now I've had the blessing of running against uh, names that I've seen for years um, that have been successful on a national and international scale. But it was the biggest field I'd, I'd been in part of. And just being able to stay in the race and uh, not have any preconceived notions, just turning the, uh, the brain off and then uh, following the race plan to a T. Um, Coach Gary said, don't think, stay right in the middle of that pack. And then start turning gears at 800 because everyone's going to start turning gears then and he challenged me to have a sub 130 close for the last 600 and i'm closing in 127 um sure. for the last six just barely missing um jordan gooseman and running a uh, score record time and that was incredibly encouraging because i'd known through cross country that i do have good range but we do tend to focus pretty exclusively on miles and 1500s with maybe a couple of 800 sprinkled in throughout my track career at Furman. So to have a physical result rather than just a speculative result, because a lot of guys on my team are always like, Oh, I want to see you run a 5k. It's like, what, what do you think you're going to run a 5k? And I'm like, well, I can say what I think I can, or you can say what I think I can, but it's all speculation. Um, so a meet like that Dr. Sanders meet where it's, coming in second by a few tenths against uh, some real players um, was physical evidence of, all right, well, I'm not a one show pony. The, my, my coach's training does work and works well. Um, and there's always that potential for great performances in multiple events, but on all those, uh, I think all those tools only serve to help with the focus event. So I'd say that, yeah, that Dr. Sanders meet was, was very exciting. 
Let's stick with last year then real quick and step back about 14 months ago, I guess now. At the end of 2020 Indoor, you had qualified for both the mile and 3K at NCAA Champs. You are hours away from getting on the start line to compete for a national championship. Then safety concerns are heightening in the early days of the pandemic and the event is canceled. Walks through how everything unfolded, <laughs> uh, the emotion of that whole experience. Yeah, I mean, it was, there was always that sinking feeling even while we were, even once we left the school. I remember we uh, took off from, um, took off for the airport, um, and we see Harvard is not letting their athletes travel to the NCAA meet. Um, and it was like, ooh, okay, well, that's not great, but that's just one school. Let's get to the airport before our school president can follow suit. Um, <laughs> if we're already there, then she can't call us back. Um, and we get there and it seems for a second, like, all right, well, it'll be a little weird, you know, but uh, it seems like there's going to be something that's going to happen in the next couple of days, but you know, maybe we can just squeeze in the, these performances, squeeze in these races. So uh, we're there. We, sit out for our shakeout but while we're um warming up it was um it was gabby and i that um were in albuquerque we're doing our warm drills and we hear acc pulls all teams out of the ncaa tournament it's like wow well that's a big conference and that's mm-hmm. conference not just a team and initially it's like well i guess maybe that means no prelim or something like that like maybe just a final whatever it ends up being just got to be ready for it but there was that sinking feeling of Ooh, you get a big conference like the ACC that has a lot of representation at a national meet pulling out. And it just seemed like the dominoes were started falling over because uh, prior to that, they had also mentioned we're reducing the field to just friends and family. And then hours later, they're like, no friends and family, no spectators. And I remember calling my parents and they're like, we just landed in Albuquerque. And I'm like, oh, oh well, I've got some, uh, some bad news for you. Oh, shit. Um, but it was kind of just seeing all these dominoes fall and we take off for our run, um, get our pre-meet in, start doing some strides around the track. And as I was taking my spikes off for my last stride, we see on the screens, the tweets that are going through and it's uh, NCAA president cancels all winter sports championships. Um, and it was like, Oh, it was just devastating. Um, you know, we, there, there was, I think that was also set up to be, a fast year you had a lot of fast mile times and uh and 3k times for that matter you had big names thinking oliver Hoare, jordy beamish and you know I'd, I'd seen those guys and i'd actually never really raced either of them um in a track race um i think we'd race in cross country but that's uh, a little different of a game a little uh, different game than um than track is um but you know i remember you know we're just walking back towards the stands like wow, that's it. That's, uh, I guess there's no comeback from that. And coaches were, uh, it, it was almost a little more emotional seeing the coaches reactions. Cause, um, you know, as it was, it was shocking and like, you know, we were, we were pretty devastated, but, but seeing like how broken that they were to see us not get our chance to compete. And this was an event that historically Furman has not sent many athletes to, um, I think we, uh, Ali Buholski is, you know, our, our most decorated alum and she is, um, she competed at 
a couple in her time, but I don't think we had any men qualify to the indoor championships since the sixties. And, uh, and that was, uh, pretty crushing to, to, I, I don't want to say necessarily being robbed of it, but I, I, maybe there's a better way to put it, but it, it did feel like it was being robbed of an experience and being robbed of an opportunity. Um, and granted, you know, it, it was also scary at the same time of these were especially in the days of what is this COVID-19? What is this coronavirus? Um, how detrimental is this going to be? And it was a tough call to make. Um, and while the athlete side of me really always wants to think, well, we were already there. We may as well just run it. I can understand the liability pressures on the NCAA uh, to be like, well, we don't know what this is. I mean, even maybe even beyond like a monetary liability, what happens if this ends up being something that kills college athletes and their families when they go home? Um, so uh, there was that respect for making that tough call. And there was also like the, the initial emotion of, well, that might be my last, uh, my last time as a paladin. You know, that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, man, now I've got to see if anyone's going to be around that's, uh, that's interested to maybe take a chance on someone that didn't really show up as much early in college, but started um, having mar- marks that or started laying down marks that I knew I was capable of for a while, but didn't start to until around about my fifth year. But coach Gary, um, once we returned to Furman, returned to campus, talked to both Gabby and I and, and said, uh, it seems like they're going to be offering another season of eligibility for outdoor not for winter sports, um, which was a little frustrating, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I can understand the logic of of conference meets had already been completed, so the normal season was over. But uh, he gave his personal recommendation. He's like, obviously, if you guys want to move on, I will help you out in any ways uh, that I can. But if you want to stay and you want to continue to develop and use this as another opportunity to continue to race in the collegiate system, um, and be supported by Furman University. Our athletic director, Jason Donnelly, already gave the okay. He said, absolutely, bring him back. Um, and the special provisions by Title IX allowing for extra scholarships to be used um, throughout the COVID era. Um, so, you know, it, it was it was initially devastating and, and, and disappointing, but there was that silver lining of there's another opportunity that comes out of this. And usually that's, that's what it is. I, mean, I, I know people have been affected in har- far more harmful ways um, than I was by this. You know, when it comes down to it, I missed a meet. You know, some people uh, lost family members. Some people lost their jobs. Um, so when it comes down to it, it's, it might not be the most uh, devastating blow that a person can have. But for me personally, it was definitely a, it was a big disappointment and, and just poor timing for a, uh, a virus to <laughs> to pop up. Well, you said it, Ryan. Uh, despite that disappointment, what a fitting twist of fate now. What providence that here you are a year plus later with this opportunity again that you otherwise might not have had. How has that changed the perspective for you over the past year on uh, racing but also just the collegiate experience in general, the Furman experience, and maybe not to make you go too deep, but, but how this shifts how we uh, shape and view our lives a, a, as a result. 
well, no, just from the get-go, um, my girlfriend was very happy <laughs> that I was able to stay for another year. Um, and that mm-hmm. was, that was definitely a big blessing to get another year, uh, in close proximity to her, um, before we, uh, tackle some distance here in the future. Um, hey, you got to know what's important, my friend. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I look at it and it, it was an opportunity to grow, um, not just as an athlete, which there was definitely that opportunity to continue to train and focus in on, uh, on training and, and, but it was also supplementing my education and getting another major, um, which at times was frustrating at times knowing I already had a degree, it was hard to get motivated, but in hindsight, I'm glad to have worked through that and possibly put my post running career, um, in a better position than it was before, because, Obviously, at some point, the legs give out. The uh, they just can't move as fast. The uh, the young guys start coming up again. Um, it's just that cycle of uh, the cycle that hits everyone. Uh, cycle of life, and it's no different in running. So, with uh, with that, it really gave another year of um, personal and professional development. And if we're talking on a on a big scale with uh, other disasters, I think there was something I, uh, great. I can't remember who said it, but it was. And every, any you know given day, any given moment, there's twenty things to twenty things to uh, grieve over, but twenty things to be grateful for. You know, and it's which twenty are you focusing on? And obviously, in the abstract, that's easier than than when you're talking specifics to someone that might be going through something incredibly hard. But as a general rule, uh, focusing on that twenty uh, things to be grateful for tends to yield more positive results and um, just more general satisfaction. Um, and it's not the easiest thing. It's, it's easier said than done, but, but there was a lot of negatives in 2020 and, and some that have carried over through 2021 and there will always be some negatives. And uh, it's just trying to shift that perspective of these are always going to be present. So how can I try to make uh, my environment the best environment that, that can be for uh, me personally, but also uh, it'll ultimately affect the guys around you or uh, the people around you. I, I'm thinking of my team. I'm sure it's much better to have a sixth year who's happy with his lot and uh, who's satisfied with where he's at and he can set the tone and he can set the standard rather than having a sixth year that's surly and um, and disappointed with where he's at or, um, or doesn't come back from not having an opportunity or doesn't want to work from, uh, doesn't want to get the momentum going because there was a stopping momentum and having to build that back up was difficult, but ultimately it's the best thing that you can do for yourself personally. And usually that ends up being the best thing that you can do for your community. Well said any sort of pain or disappointment hurts more to us or to the person that it's happening to when it's inside of us rather than any experience that we can relate with someone else because it's so intimate. Uh, But as you just said, I know they're cliches, but to just be able to control what you can control, to be to be grateful, those life lessons you took away are powerful, but they're also really meaningful to racing too, the greater power of this sport. Ryan, this has been so much fun. Can I get a few more quick questions here before we go get a little lighter with you? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Before yeah. we exit. Okay. Super. So once upon a time, you roomed with our friend and <laughs> one of our favorite guests, Frank Lara. Uh, any good Frank story that you can share, whether that's something funny or maybe even just a training memory? 
Oh my goodness. One Frank story is, is, is hard to pinpoint. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I could, if I really look back at every day, I could, I could think that's a Frank story right there. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I'm, I, it's, it's hard to, to recall something specific, but I just, uh, I remember a fairly overwhelmingly positive experience. I mean, he was really easygoing. I, I mean, personally, I'm the more neurotic roommate when it comes down to it. I, I like things clean. I like things a specific way. God bless anyone that's had to deal with me uh, by living in the same apartment or the same room. Um, but Frank always took it in stride and he always tried to, uh, I remember as not a morning person, very vividly every single morning for 6.30 practice, you know, we, we would come at 5.30 or um, if we're sleeping in at 6, uh, till 6, then uh, that's when we're waking up. But it was always, good morning, Ryan. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, how are you so scary at this hour? <laughs> like, I'm not even conscious yet. <laughs> like, and I, I think like part of it was maybe just a little bit to, to try to mess with me and bother me because he knew that I'm not a morning person. Um, but part of it was also, it's like, well, yeah, maybe that's a good way to start the day. But it was always funny because um, in that time he had a, um, a old um, minivan was his car <laughs> and we would drive to, to, to practice. And uh, if you know Frank's taste in music, he really enjoyed metal and really enjoyed like this super hard rock so we'd be driving over and and this was against his clerk in the morning and and he'd be <laughs> singing along with uh i guess i, I don't know um I'm trying to remember his bands like dance gavin dance or something like that yeah. or, or yeah. pierce the veil and i'm like oh, this this guy's a character like you never think it but when like when you just see him because uh, he's crushing these 10ks running so so dang fast but it's also like ah, yeah no, he listens to hard metal and uh, and we watched a lot of anime together as well. <laughs> Gosh, I can just picture him behind that minivan wheel with his hair <laughs> now long and the mustache <laughs> and the whole thing. And you also subtly kind of nailed the voice there too when you did that <laughs> good, good morning impression. Are you willing to call yourselves the fastest roommates in Furman history? Hmm. It'd be a close one because he, he ended up rooming with um, Aaron Templeton. Oh, uh, I wondered about like two that. Two years after. So I'd say maybe we have the most range of any roommates in Furman history. Okay. It's, it is tough though. Cause, cause, cause Aaron was, uh, was obviously very, very good in his own right. Yeah. Um, toward the end of his time in Furman. But I'd say that that could probably be uh, the big argument right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you're an Ohio guy and there's a plenty of great distance running tradition in that state. <laughs> Guys just uh, at your age, a little bit older, uh, Brandon Kidder, Sam mm-hmm. Prakel, of course, Clayton Murphy. Anybody you looked up to, uh, maybe somebody that you got to compete against when you were young, freshman or sophomore in high school, who um, left an impact on you, the maybe, maybe the same way that there's some guys out there when they were a freshman got to say, I ran against Ryan Adams when he was a senior. <laughs> yeah, so it can stretch back a little far because um, my brother, who's five years older than me, also ran. Um, he was a Southern high school, didn't see quite the same amount of success when he was in college. And uh, I'd, I'd probably like put that mainly on just inconsistency, inconsistency in, uh, in coaching and training. And he ended up having about five different coaches in his time in college, which if anything I've learned, uh, consist, a consistent program just yields fruit the longer that you're in it. Yeah. But because of that, there was guys that he'd raced against that I also got to watch when he was um, racing in high school. Um, one name that springs to mind immediately is Corey Leslie. Um, oh, he's yeah. not racing anymore, but um, what an Ohio legend. Um, yeah. I remember 
he broke the division two record in the 800 when my brother was a sophomore. I mean, I, I had to be maybe in fifth or sixth grade and, uh, and it was pretty nuts to see someone that could run that fast and just blow away a field like that. And he was one of the big reasons why I ended up even looking at Furman at all was because when Corey Leslie is giving you a recommendation and uh, he's recruiting you personally, it's like, well, this is uh, one of the greatest athletes to come out of Ohio. Um, and simultaneously at the same time on Furman Lee was um, Jeff C who mm-hmm. also an Ohio boy. Um, yeah. So it was pretty cool to my freshman year initially come to a, um, a program where there was a couple guys, at least from my home state. But then I look at like uh, current active um, runners like um, Sam Prakel. Um, and one of my, actually, this is a good race memory story. My sophomore year, uh, it was a major achievement because I could always say I beat Sam Prakel because in our four by eight at <laughs> state finals, uh, I got the baton a good, good margin ahead of him on the anchor leg. And uh, I want to say that he brought his team, his team from maybe sixth place to third place. And the margin was just a little too large um, to catch up to us in um, second place team. But uh, that was always a, uh, uh, <laughs> something that I, I would love to say is, yeah, no, I beat Sam pretty cool. You know, granted it took uh, me and three other guys to do it, but <laughs> <laughs> we got it. And then guys like um, Jacob Dumford. And I remember hmm. I, I raced him a couple of times in college. I raced him a couple of times. Um, when he was in college, I should say, um, raced him a couple of times, uh, in the past couple of years. And I just remember hearing his name at indoor meets when I was a freshman in high school and just hearing Jacob Dumford breaks whatever record with times that at that point in my running career, I was thinking, Oh goodness, well, I hope I can get close to that time at some point. So, and, uh, and with Clayton, he's a little closer to my age. I never really raced him. I raced him once in at Raleigh Relays, my freshman year of, of college. But uh, he's actually pretty close to where my parents live back in Ohio. So so it's pretty nice whenever I go back to be able to get some runs with, in with him, um, just pick his brain about the professional experience, about lifestyle, about his goals, um, how he's constantly looking to improve himself. And uh, he really came on the scene strong. And um, I'm always excited to see what he can do whenever he's racing. Unfortunately, I can't say that I've, uh, I've beaten him. Uh, <laughs> Uh, came close at uh, JDL last year, and then there's a great picture um, where it's a couple meters before the finish. You see Willie Fink outleaning um, Ed Cheserek, and Vince Ciotti and I are pretty much right next to each other, but I'm looking over because I see that Clayton releases <laughs> his kick and uh, and gets me at the line. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, that's about, about to be the first time I could say I beat Clayton. But, yeah, just a lot of good guys that have come out of Ohio. I mean, currently in college, you still got Kyle Mao and uh, Mick Stanisvic. Um, uh, when, I, when I think of milers, at least, you know, mm-hmm. other distances, Andrew Jordan has been making a splash in the, in the distance scene. And I'm sure there's plenty of guys that I'm not mentioning, but uh, it's, it's a competitive state. Um, I like to think that we're, uh, we're born a little different up there, um, <laughs> just having to deal with, uh, especially Northeast Ohio, dealing with that uh, volatile Cleveland weather. But uh, it, it is always fun to see how guys can do and how, uh, as a state, we can, uh, we can stack up against like, these bigger states like California or something like that where uh, they're spinning out guys left and right. 
uh, it's neat to think about the Ohio State connection with Coach Gary and mm. uh, those guys that as a link and a bridge to you. With, uh, as you said, a, a lot of great runners. For the locals in Greenville, what's your favorite run in the area? Uh, so I'd say uh, we have a loop that we call Pizza Hut. Um, and this is a, a Furman loop that's actually, uh, I want to say, dates back to the cross-country team in the 70s. And it's on campus, or it starts on campus, and then it goes out and uh, goes right along the edge of Paris Mountain. It doesn't quite go up it, but it is fairly hilly. It, it rolls enough, though, um, that it's not just a horrible run to do. And it's about a nine-mile, and it can be a ten-mile loop if you do it right. So it's always nice to, to be able to do that versus like an out and back. But obviously, I, I, I love doing our, um, our tempos whenever we're on Swamp Rabbit Trail or um, – if we're doing any kind of long run, we typically go to uh, DuPont um, yeah. State Forest. And, and there's a, uh, also a, going right through Traveler's Rest, right across the state border, there's a loop in Zirconia, uh, Tuxedo Lake. Um, that's a pretty good soft surface spot. So good places to run um, overall. Uh, but yeah, I think that Pizza Hut one is, uh, is one that I'm trying to keep alive with, uh, with the current team. I'm always trying to say, come on, someone come with me, especially the <laughs> underclassmen. Like, I know it's, it seems like it's harder, but it's, it's really just as hilly as most of the other refs. And <laughs> so. nice. You got to keep that tradition alive. You uh, nailed a bunch of my favorites in that list there, too. That uh, loop up at DuPont is, is, is pretty rugged, though. You got to be uh, <laughs> ready and fit to. Uh, Have you done the, uh, the, the 16 mile loop? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a, that is a fun, fun loop. I was just talking about it the other day with someone that I said, if you haven't done it, you, you got to hit that at least once for sure. Oh, yeah. That'll put some hair on your chest for sure. <laughs> that's, that is true. <laughs> Maybe I need to run there more. Uh, okay, let's imagine this scenario. It's late June in Eugene. You've had a big performance at nationals. Maybe you make the final in the 15 at the trials. Spring season's over. You got a little time to unwind. And now you can really focus on what's important. You wake up, maybe you're at uh, staying at a hotel in Eugene. You wake up, you have an endless breakfast buffet in front of you with no consequences. Rank these options in order for me. Waffles, pancakes, French toast. Ryan Adams, what are you doing? I know that waffles is third. I like okay. waffles, but they're, they're, there's no it's, – it's a little closer with that pancakes and French toast. Okay. I'm with I'd you so race, far. Race morning, I always eat pancakes. Uh, so French toast would definitely land second there. But if we're just talking like we're treating ourselves normal, French toast is on top. <laughs> My guy. All right. I'm French toast, pancakes, waffles myself All right. <laughs> as well. I love it. Uh, last thing, Ryan, have you decided anything on plans for what's next after Furman? Uh, still working on that. Um, I've been in contact with, uh, with a couple groups and uh, obviously right now the primary focus is on, is on competition and performance. Uh, the biggest thing that's going to drive any kind of opportunity to not just run but be able to sustain, sustain myself monetarily which is uh which is a big thing you know as uh, as long as i've got a roof over my head and good food to eat then uh, I'll, I'll be pretty pleased with that but um but that's that can only be improved by a good performance in the next couple of weeks so plans I, I still plan on running professionally we'll see where uh whether i follow any uh former firm and team uh teammates footsteps uh, to where they're at or or maybe 
bring the Furman name to somewhere new, but, um, but I might keep uh, my cards a little closer to the chest for this one. Okay. I, yeah. I can respect that. I thought this might be the source where you would want to break some news. Uh, <laughs> Not hard, <quite> yet. <laughs> hard hitting track stories here. Ryan, we wish you nothing but the best at uh, Jacksonville coming up and then following that, hopefully an extended stay in Eugene. We had Allie on in 2018, right before mm. she had a great performance out there. So, oh, man, hopefully that magic is. Uh, uh, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd like to think that we can give you a little juju here for for the trip south, then the trip west. You are a, a tremendous representation of the university, and um, there's much to be proud of for for you and the people of, at Furman. And we're really thankful that you shared the time. And we will be watching you run some great races over the next month. Thanks, Travis. Really appreciate that. It's been, uh, been a good time for sure.